The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Fucking... Welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. I'm your host, JP John Paz. With me today, a great returning guest. He is a journalist, a wrestling historian. He's also, of course, a wrestling fan, but most importantly, the author of the WCW Nitro book, Nitro, The Incredible Rise and Inevitable Collapse of Ted Turner's WCW. He is Mr. Guy Evans. Guy, welcome back to the two-man power trip. How are you doing? I'm doing great, John. I'm not sure about uh, a couple of those labels, but hey, I'll take it. Thanks for the uh, <laughs> thanks for the great intro. Yes. So, what is going on in your world? You had a very big announcement. Surprised me. I thought it was going to be, uh, you know, the expanded edition part two or something. But <laughs> what what is up with uh, the latest announcement? Yeah, that's right. Uh, for, for those people who didn't catch it uh, last Friday, we announced uh, the second autobiography by Eric Bischoff, and it's. We're billing it as uh, something that was produced in partnership with myself. Um, so it's something that, that Eric and I um, have worked on now for a little over a year. Uh, the name of the book is Grateful. And um, really, it's, it tells the story of everything that's happened in Eric's life and career since Controversy Creates Cash um, was released in 2006. So there's quite a lot of ground to cover there in terms of what's happened with him personally and professionally some of the changes in the wrestling business, you know, um, Eric has really actually gone through a lot of ups and downs, which I think he's, he's alluded to in the past in different interviews and podcasts and things of that nature. But, um, in this book, we really delve into that, you know, some of the challenges that he's had to overcome, you know, for example, it was only, you know, five or six years ago that he was dealing with some severe financial issues and filing for bankruptcy and things of that nature. So it certainly hasn't been, um, you know, a smooth ride necessarily for him over these past 15 years. Um, but he's come out of it, you know, in a really interesting way, um, I think, as a, as a better person, as someone who's, um, you know, much more appreciative and grateful, hence the title, um, with respect to his experiences in the wrestling business and what he was able to achieve, um, you know, back in the day with, with WCW and the WWE. Um, so we announced the book last Friday, you know, and if you go to bischoffbook.com, uh, it's a very simple and, and memorable website. You can actually pre-order the book. And the advantage of doing that is twofold. Um, first of all, the book will be signed by both Eric and myself when you receive it in November, but also there'll be some bonus content in there that will only be going out to those who pre-order the book through bischoffbook.com. So it's definitely worth doing that as opposed to waiting you know, until it goes up on, on Amazon or something like that. Um, so definitely encourage people to go to, to bischoffbook.com. And, uh, and, you know, as I say, it's, uh, it's an exciting project. It's something that I didn't necessarily expect was going to happen when the Nitro book was first released four years ago. But um, as you know, John, and I'm sure some people listening will know as well, you know, Eric, much to my surprise, became a big advocate and supporter of, of the book. So it's, it's kind of a, a cool little story in and of itself, how that progressed to, you know, him and I working on, on this project as well. I love that because I mean, I obviously was one of the first people that, that I know of that, that got, you know, get that book. I was like, this is great. 
And the guy who's basically the only guy ever to beat Vince McMahon, you know, the, the big proponent of Nitro, really the reason why the NWO kind of started and was successful. You know, one of the reasons, obviously, but the, the main key cog in the wheel, it's like, wow, he really liked the Nitro book. It was not surprising, but you never know some of the guys if they're sensitive or if you say something bad or you say mm-hmm. something good, even, you know, they get a little sensitive. So it really cool that Bischoff was a big proponent of the book. It is, and, and I think, you know, for those people who haven't read uh, the Nitro book, as it's referred to, you know, Nitro, The Incredible Rise and Inevitable Collapse of Ted Turner's WCW uh, is the full name of the book. For those people who, who haven't checked it out, um, and, I, you know, Eric has said this himself as well, there's some portions of the book that, you know, he has said were, were quite difficult to read about himself um, in terms of some of the other comments that various WCW and Turner uh, ex-employees had to say about him and his his tenure with WCW. So uh, certainly, by no means is it sort of a um, you know a portrait of him that's entirely positive. I think, if anything, it, it, you could argue it probably skews more so the other way, um, especially once we get into what was happening in the last two or three years of the company. So you know, I was obviously aware that he was either going to read the book or going to hear about what was in the book once it was published. You know, he was kind enough to give me probably four hours of his time in, in doing, you know, a couple of interviews um, for the book. Um, and I knew he was, he was going to be aware of it, but, you know, he very easily could have gone on his podcast and said, look, this is a bunch of BS. Don't believe any of, of it. And I'm sure, you know, for many thousands of people, that would probably be all they needed to hear. The only excuse that they needed to not check out the book. Uh, but actually he did the opposite. He said, you know, look, there, there's some, things that I really didn't like reading about myself here. And at time it, times it was a painful read, but it's it's true. And the first time that I actually met him face-to-face, it was several months after the book came out. And if you remember, you know, the, uh, the StarCast convention um, oh, yeah. in, in, in 2018 in Chicago, the first one, that was when I had the, the chance to meet Eric. And he essentially said the same thing to my face. He said, look, you know, you did such a great job with the book. You, you worked so hard on it. Um, although, you know, I didn't like some of it. It's the truth. And, and that's more or less, you know, what he said at the time. So what I've said in, in other, you know, comments and interviews about this is I think that's actually quite commendable. You know, whatever your perception is of, of Eric or, or anyone else in the wrestling business, I think you have to ask yourself if you were in that position, if someone was doing a deep dive about a company that at one time you were leading and you were an integral part of, and they sort of dug up some things that um, really did not portray you in the most positive light, you know, would you or would we necessarily have the same response and the same reaction? And I, and I don't think necessarily you know, everyone would, right? I think it's a natural human tendency if there's something that puts you in a, in a negative light to kind of dismiss the entire um, project, but he didn't do that. So. You know, that was really, I think, that that sort of experience of talking to him and considering his feedback to the book um, probably laid the groundwork of eventually what was to come, which is, you know, him and I working together on, on this new book. Very cool, like, for him to, you know, just be so honest about it. Like, yeah, it doesn't really paint me in the best light sometimes, but everything is true and it's factual because he didn't really say that about the death of WCW book, but I've interviewed Artie Reynolds, I've interviewed... Uh, Brian Alvarez for they were saying oh it's so similar to the Nitro book how come Bischoff says opposite how come Bischoff says Nitro book is much more honest than that that book you know I'm not sure I mean you know when I've been asked about the the other WCW book the death of WCW in the past you know I've I've always sort of pointed to the fact that I think that the books are just different I mean obviously they, they cover the same subject um, you know the, the rise and fall of WCW essentially but I think the approach that I took with the Nitro book um, that I would like to think sort of sets it apart from other books in, in the genre is, you know, first of all, going straight to the source and speaking to over 120, you know, former WCW and Turner employees and actually getting these people for the most part on the record, right? So um, I could be wrong, but I, I think prior to the Nitro book, um, you seldom saw, um, you know, a wrestling book that had as many people willing to be quoted about, at times, some sensitive topics that related to their employment with a wrestling organization. 
Um, and certainly you you hadn't heard from a lot of the bigwigs, you know, at, at Turner or an equivalent entity if there was a book about, you know, another wrestling organization. And I think the other thing that sort of possibly, you know, gained Eric's respect and, and other people um, in his position was the fact that, and, and I didn't really highlight this much in sort of hyping up the book, but the Nitro book really is informed um, in as much by a lot of um, sort of, I, I would call, uh, you know, objective data, for lack of a better phrase, in addition to the the one-on-one -on -one interviews that I did with people. So, you know, if you think about some of the, the financial documents that are referenced in the book, um, some of the, the intercompany memos and, and emails and, you know, statements and, and things of that nature that I was able to, to gain access to, you know, I was able to talk with or, or discuss in the book uh, with confidence, you know, the actual, you know, exact financial picture in WCW in a particular year, because as I was writing the book, I had those financial statements in front of me. So, you know, if the, if the book references, um, you know, how much money the company made or, or lost in a given year, I can cross-reference that back to the actual documents themselves. So, I think the combination of, of having access to those documents, you know, speaking to, to so many people, trying as best as one person possibly could to filter out, you know, some of the input that, that was obviously motivated by malice and, and personal agendas. Not that that's, you know, entirely possible to do, but, but, but that also was part of the process. And then just trying to always go back to the central mission of the book, which is to find out what what was the truth here what actually happened right um you know in doing the book at that time i didn't know anyone in the wrestling business i had never interviewed anyone in the wrestling business so you know again i would like to think as much as humanly possible um you know the book was written from a place of just pure curiosity right not looking to um paint a certain picture or to uh, communicate a certain agenda or to settle scores with people or to you know influence people to think one way or another um, you know, the, the book was really coming from a place of, hey, you know, I was someone who followed this very closely back in the day. I've enjoyed all of the books and the documentaries that have been produced about this particular subject, but I still have a lot of questions that really have not been answered. And there's a lot of people that haven't really had their say that I'd like to hear from. And, you know, if no one else is going to get to the bottom of this, then, then I'll have a go. And that was really it, you know, and, and, I thought once the book came out, it would probably make a splash for a couple of weeks and maybe a few dozen people or something would check it out. And, you know, here we are four years later and obviously now it's led to this new book. Um, we have a, an expanded edition of the book, which you, you referenced a few minutes ago um, with some bonus chapters and footnotes and show scripts and things of that nature that, that people can, can check out and an audible version of the book as well. So it's really, you know, again, I think we probably mentioned this the last time that we spoke, but um, it's really been such a, a blessing. Um, and I'm so grateful, um, you know, what has happened, you know, in terms of the book reaching so many people and getting the positive response um, that it has. And I, and I have people like you to thank for that. And just everyone who, who read the book and took the time to, to check it out. It's, it's really been amazing. Definitely want to get back into the Bischoff book and, and talk about Grateful, but since you mentioned the Nitro expanded version, I mean, this thing is awesome. It's like 550 pages, first of all, but there's so much good, especially if you're like a huge WW buff like I was, huge fan of them. I mean, there's so much extra content here that, that's awesome. The 1996, the one that stuck out to me the most, the 1996 WW strategic business plan. I love that stuff because it's like, how could you get like that information? I know we're talking about many years later, but I mean, that's like key vital information that, that that's like their internal document. And and I know because I work for a company now and they have the strategic plan. We've had this big meeting. They go over it, you know, right. like what, what they plan to do. I mean, this is awesome stuff that it was. I mean, I was shocked to see this in the book because I didn't realize it was there and I was going through it. I'm like, oh my God, what is this? And it's like what they plan to do in 96, how they plan on making money, how they plan on expanding the business. Just talk to me a little, a little bit about first of all, finding that, but then, you know, delve into that because it's just awesome stuff. I mean, you're talking about sponsorships, 900 numbers, uh, the race cars. I mean, it really cool stuff. Yeah. I'm glad that you, uh, that you noticed that that was something I was really, you know, excited to include in the book. And I, I thought 
for a while how best I could weave this into the expanded book. I thought, is there a way that maybe throughout the book I can include sections of this, you know, in different footnotes, or maybe I can kind of, you know, conjure up some sort of narrative in a bonus chapter and, and reference sections of it. And eventually I decided, you know what, I think from the, the fans' point of view, what would be most interesting to them is just to see the whole thing for themselves. Because as you said, it, it is pretty fascinating to look at. It was at such a key point um, in WCW's history and obviously such a, a key point in, in wrestling history. And it's kind of fun to look at that and see what they were able to achieve in 96 and some things that were, I guess, left on the cutting room floor that they, they never were able to, to get around to. Um, you know, it's funny because that document actually came from someone that, you know, no one would ever expect, I'll, I'll say that much, um, not one of the prominent sort of WCW names that, that everyone thinks of when they, they think back on this time. But it came from actually someone who worked on the Turner side who um, mentioned to me actually at the time that I interviewed them in probably 2017 or 2018, they said, you know, I think I still have a few files kind of laying around from from the WCW days. And, you know, may, maybe I'll, I'll uh, go look in the garage one of these days and see what I can find. And actually, a lot of people will say things like that when you interview them. Um, and most of the time, they, you know, you, you don't hear anything about it. But in this particular case, uh, in doing the expanded version, I, I said, you know, what? I need to follow up on that because I think this person is, is genuine and, and I think they, they probably do have something. And lo and behold, you know, he was able to dig up um, this strategic plan from, from 1996 that, you know, was laying in this, this box all of these years later. And um, stuff like that is, is really fascinating. And, it, and it's things like that that, you know, you're not going to find through a Google search, right? You're not going to. Yeah, definitely. You're not, you're not going to uncover that by, you know, doing your own research on the internet or, or what have you. You actually have to, you know, speak to the people who are involved and in some cases kind of press them on, on, on what they know and, and what they still might have. And, you know, that was a, a really cool thing, as you mentioned, that, that has gone into the uh, the expanded book. Man, it's like so fascinating. It's like kind of, you know, basically opens the gate of like what WCW was doing in 96 or wanted to do in 96 that really kind of helped turn the tide. And obviously 96 is the year that turns the tide for, for real and really puts them on the 83 weeks of dominance. But it's funny. It's like NASCAR, monster trucks some sort of kid stuff like i mean it's just like an interesting way to kind of go about it and it's like okay um how do we bridge the gap between what people think about WWF programming and wcw programming? it's so fascinating some of that stuff it really is and I, I think it speaks to the overall philosophy at the time which as you sort of alluded to there was the fact that you had these these two companies that were essentially you know at this particular point in time running neck and neck, at, at least in terms of um, TV ratings, right? That, you know, if you think about the early part of 96 or, or the, the initial few months of, of Nitro being on the air, you know, the, the companies were going back and forth. They were trading wins. You know, there, there were some sort of minor win streaks in there, but certainly nothing like what was going to follow. So it became really important for each company to try to differentiate themselves, you know, and obviously to the masses, let's say, even though WCW certainly had a huge footprint in um, particular parts of the country, you know, to, to the average person, as is the case today, when they think of professional wrestling or wrestling or wrestlers, uh, you know, they think of at the time the WWF or WWE today. So I think, you know, that, that strategic plan, when you look at it and you look at some of those particular ideas, I think it really speaks to the overall ethos, which is, how do we differentiate ourselves from our competitor? We're never going to out WWF the WWF. Um, so how can we brand ourselves in such a way where people look at us as a distinct entity? And you know, one of the conversation pieces or, or, or topics that came up in the original book, which I, I find pretty interesting, um, was the notion that perhaps there was a brief moment in time that when the average person out there, you know, thought of professional wrestling, uh, they may have thought of, of WCW, you know, maybe we could say at some point in, in maybe 1997 or, or 98, uh, you know, when the company was doing these big crossover 
you know, uh, pay-per-view events with the likes of, you know, Dennis Rodman and, and Karl Malone and what have you, and, and really becoming a, a cultural force, um, you know, it's kind of interesting to think about uh, whether or not in, in some, you know, to some small degree, uh, that may have been the case. Because I think, you know, you look at the landscape today, uh, obviously AEW has, you know, a very dedicated, uh, you know, fan base. You know, I think they've, they've done well to maintain their viewership, depending on, on how you look at it, right? I think an optimistic way of looking at it would be to say they've done well in terms of maintaining that audience over the past few years. Um, but, but certainly they're nowhere near uh, the level of when the, again, average person out there, whether they're a wrestling fan or not, um, and particularly if they're not a wrestling fan, when they think about wrestling, you know, they're, they're nowhere near the point where they're going to think about AEW. Um, but I think WCW arguably got close and maybe even to some degree, as I said, got to that point at its peak, um, which is, a, you know, really an incredible achievement, regardless of the fact that they had, you know, huge resources and the backing of, uh, of Turner Broadcasting behind them. The fact that the company was able to do that um, is, is pretty impressive and, and makes the, the downfall of the company and, you know, that happened in such a rapid fashion all the more, um, you know, just incredible as well. It is crazy because they had some great ideas in place. And obviously, I mean, they were doing some, some great things. And even back in 96, you know, they're talking about uh, pay-per-view bundles and packages and sports rebranding and how, you know, 94, 95 kind of laid the foundation for the reinventing and 96 beyond is going to be, you know, the, the profit years. And part of that is true. And then obviously, like you said, it, it fell off the map. I mean, it's just mm -hmm. crazy to think they were so good and they were so big. And they were dominating WWF, and then it just quickly went the other direction. It's like nuts. It really is, especially when you consider how long has TNA or Impact or whatever the company is called now, how long has that company been in existence? 20 years now? Is that right? Yeah. Yep. Just came so, up 20 years, yeah. And you think about all of those moments that occurred during the time that Nitro was on the air, You know, all of those matches, all of those angles, all of those promos that people still go back and watch. All of that having occurred in a span of less than six years, you know, five and a half years, essentially. Um, and you, you put that against the fact that a company like Impact has, has been in existence for 20 years, you know, already AEW, you know, I suppose we're coming up on on the third year of, of it being on, you know, the old Turner Network. So, you know, when you really think about everything that happened in that in that span of time, and as you mentioned, just how quickly it unraveled, um, you know, I think it's a story that that evidently still fascinates people. And, and I've often kind of wondered when will the fascination with the Monday Night Wars end, right? Because there, there's been, you know, obviously several documentaries, there's been a, a number of books, innumerable shoot interviews, podcasts, conventions, but it, it seems like fans appetite to hear about what happened during that time just never seems to end and perhaps that speaks to something deeper than pro wrestling as well perhaps that's reflective uh as to what was happening in the culture at that time and, and where things were you know sort of on a, on a societal level and, and and what life was like maybe even you know in the mid to late 90s as compared to today i'm not sure but but i wonder will the same level of interest or anywhere near the, the same level of interest um, in today's wrestling product be reflected in the type of conversations that are happening 10, 15, 20 years from now? Are we going to see, you know, a similar level of interest in, in what's going on in wrestling today in the future? Um, only time will tell, obviously, but I'm, I'm quite skeptical about that because, you know, really the, the interest in the Monday Night Wars period has not really been usurped um, by the interest in another period in wrestling, you know, so far, at least uh, from what I can tell. Yeah, it's funny. It's like, okay, that happened 20-plus years ago. I mean, really almost 30 years ago now. It only lasted six years, but people are obsessed with that. I mean, and those memories stuck with them. Impact's been around 20 years, and you really can't remember kind of what, what they've been doing or, you know, or, you know where, what direction they're in. You know what I mean? It's, it's a crazy kind of thing where it's like, obviously, WCW meant something to a lot of people. And, you know, wrestling, let's just, you know, say it was probably a lot better back then as well. Yeah, I would tend to agree with you. I mean, obviously, it's it's such a subjective 
thing, isn't it? And you know, I'm sure that you can probably look at the um, the, the matches today. You know, if that's if that's sort of your barometer of um, how good quote unquote you know wrestling is, and you can probably say, okay, there's much more of a an emphasis on the athleticism and the in ring action as a whole is is arguably more impressive if if that's sort of what you're looking at. But I think you know back then one of the things that I think really helped both companies is the fact that the shows were really produced with the mass audience in mind. Um, and th this is something that I reflected on quite a lot in putting together the expanded Nitro book. And there's a chapter in there where I'm really sort of trying to reflect on, you know, what were the conditions that made um, this, this phenomena possible? Because it wasn't just, you know, the great storylines. It wasn't just the the, the star power at the time, although they were, you know, the necessary ingredients, but I think there were sort of force multipliers that, that made it much bigger. Um, but I think, you know, it all started with both companies producing the shows in such a way where they were trying to attract the mass audience. And I think the effect that that has on your programming, uh, you know, again, as an outsider, as someone who's never done, done this, uh, but as, as someone who's interested in it, I think what it does is it keeps you honest in your storytelling. It keeps you honest in terms of how wrestlers are addressing the crowd, the audience during promos. It keeps you honest in terms of the content and the nature of the actual matches because you're not taking anything for granted. You're not assuming that, oh, if, if we in include a show full of these insider references, our fans out there are going to know exactly what we're saying. Um, you know, if you if you only do that, if you only produce the matches in a way that's going to appeal to the, the the people who you know read the the newsletters and the websites and so on, if you only structure your uh, promos in such a way where they're full of references that only someone who's been following wrestling their whole life would understand, then then obviously you're going to hit ceiling in terms of the new fans that you can you can attract. So. Um, obviously, as time went on and WCW in the year, you know, 2000, you know, infamously, I think made a, made a huge mistake by delving into some of that territory that I referenced there, where the show became um, much more something that was designed to appeal to those, um, you know, hardcore obsessive fans versus something that, you know, a family member could walk into the room who knew nothing about wrestling and, and maybe sit down and enjoy um, as had been the case in the past. So uh, obviously, you know, WCW and WWF at times, you know, both fell into that trap. But I think when things were really rocking and rolling and when, you know, WCW and WWF wrestlers were on the, the cover of, you know, Entertainment Weekly and uh, on the, the talk show circuit and, and prominently, you know, featured in television shows and, and movies and so on, you know, when wrestling was a cultural force, when wrestling really you know was on the map in terms of appealing to the masses um i think in large part that had a lot to do with the focus that each company had let's let's expand the audience let's develop new fans let's try to grab fans who are maybe fans of you know dare i say legitimate sports or, or other you know television programming let's try to entice them and i just fail to see you know today when i and I don't follow it particularly closely, so I should say that as a disclaimer. But when I do kind of tune into what's happening today, I don't see that same sense of urgency or that same focus on, you know, grabbing the the casual fan or the uh, even the, the non-wrestling fan. It seems to me that, you know, in, in the case of a lot of wrestling companies, um, it's kind of like, okay, we have our audience. They They follow us. They like what we do. And we're just going to give them what they like essentially over and over again. And, you know, you, you can argue that perhaps that's a, uh, you know, you know, not the worst business decision in the world, but um, as someone who is more of a fan of the sort of the spectacle of wrestling and the, the, the pomp and circumstance around it and the, and the entertainment value that comes with it, you know, certainly I would like to see more of a focus on some of the things that I mentioned before, but that's, that's just my taste. And I'm not saying that I'm, that I'm right in that. When you look at it, like back then, it's like, okay, the ratings are peaking. <clears throat> excuse me. They're beating football and, and basketball and things like that. 
and I know people are going to say, oh, you know, that's crazy, but it really was. I mean, people, it was appointment TV. People wanted to watch it. People had to watch it. I just don't think we'll ever get to that point again. I mean, football, forget about it. I mean, that just blows mm-hmm. wrestling out of the water completely. But isn't that so fascinating to think about that? Like, people were more interested in, in wrestling than than maybe even NFL or even NBA. It was, it, and, you know, you got Michael Jordan, all this other stuff going on. People were really, really interested in WCW and WWF. And I think that's reflective in the reaction of the live crowds as well. And I, I know that's something I've heard from a lot of people who said, you know, since the the advent of WWE Network, which I, I believe was in, in 2014, um, once a lot of people had the ability to go back and watch some of these old shows um, that maybe didn't have the, 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 the opportunity to originally, uh, one of the things that really struck people, I think, was the reaction of the of the crowds you know i mean every, everyone can think about you know roar is war coming on the air right and just a, a sea of you know, 20 30,000 people seemingly with, with all all the signs in their hands and going crazy and the pyro going off um you know you, you can go back and look at nitro when it really was at its hottest and seemingly everyone on the roster was getting a reaction from the crowd when they came out there never really seemed to be a dull moment necessarily, you know, during the the program, especially when, you know, it was an hour or, or two hours long. Um, you know, that I think that did change once Nitro was expanded to three hours, and then you had the Thunder Show and and so on and so forth. But um, you know, you, you go back and you look at you pull up a, a Nitro or a Raw from when those companies were really, uh, you know, on on a similar playing field and and going at each other head to head every week. You know, the, the people are reacting to what's happening in the ring in a similar fashion as they would at a sporting event. Um, you know, people are not sitting there and sort of, you know, analyzing what, what what's happening. Um, there's there's not a lot of sort of um, what we what we see today. I think where it seems like a lot of the live audience is sort of playing the role more of, of a critic as opposed to a fan, right? Um, I think that the fun part about going to a wrestling show is, is allowing yourself to, you know, sort of fall into that. It's, it's a cliche, but that, that, that's that, uh, willing sense of, 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 uh, disbelief or suspend, suspend your disbelief, I should say, and, you know, allow yourself to react to what's happening, um, as if it were real, you know, uh, you, you, you don't have to feel foolish for doing so i think that's the same thing that we all do when we go and watch a movie right we when we watch a tv show um you know we allow ourselves to be absorbed in in the action and that's what makes it fun and i think unfortunately you know in in wrestling today and maybe again this has a lot to do with the way it's being produced um i think it's just much more difficult to do that you know and and quite frankly a lot of things have changed since then as well right you know you, you look at the fact that everyone now has a smartphone in their hand and they're able to interact not only with the people around them and the wrestlers in the ring, but also you know, millions of other people around the world as well in real time, that's going to influence the way that you digest um, what's in front of you and the way that you interact with it as well. So um, I tend to agree with you in, in, in a, this is a long way of, of putting it, but um, I don't think that we're going to get a return to those days. I think, you know, enough time has passed now where we can see that. You never want to say never because, you know, it's, it's theoretically possible that the right person, the right star may come along that completely captivates the country, or maybe even the world. And, you know, all of a sudden wrestling's the, the hottest thing out there again. Um, but I really don't see it at least anytime soon. And um, what I do see is, you know, a very dedicated core of wrestling fans who um you know watch seemingly you know everything that's out there um but that number is dwindling you know it's dwindling you know it's going down slowly year by year but it is going down um you know which concerns me as someone who would like to see you know wrestling be more culturally relevant and more popular in general um but i I really don't see that happening anytime soon with Go back to like WCW, obviously. With WCW at this point, what do you think like leads to the downfall? Because I know obviously you talk about a lot of stuff in the book, but a lot of like the speculation is, oh, it's all the booking. It's just the booking. But it it, it can't be because WB has had so many awful bookings and so many <laughs> awful angles, so much bad creative 
and they're making more money than ever. You know what I mean? So, like, what do you think really led to the the, the slide down the hill? Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, when you talk about, um, you know, the relationship between the booking or the, the programming and WCW's fortunes as a whole, obviously there is a relationship there. But um, I think, you know, two things can be true at the same time, right? You can say that clearly if you look at the last couple of years of WCW's programming as compared to where it was at its peak, um, you know, there, I'm sure there are people out there that, that may say, well, you know, some of my favorite angles or matches happened in those last couple of years. And there were some bright spots, um, but clearly it was nowhere near as good as it had been, you know, in the preceding couple of years. But at the same time, you know, while that is true, you can also say that it was a more complex set of factors or, or reasons that led to WCW's downfall, um, which the book covers in great detail. You know, I think the fact is if you, if you look at the book or if you look at the, 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 the subject, um, in context, you know, you sort of appreciate that um, aside from Ted Turner, Turner Broadcasting as a whole, when you look at some of the key decision makers and, and executives in that company, were not supportive of not just WCW, but the entire notion of having a professional wrestling company um, as part of or, or, or something that was under the Turner umbrella. Um, you know, it wasn't necessarily because of uh, the nature of, of WCW's programming, although certainly that, that didn't help at times. Um, but just the very idea that of the 150 or so subsidiary companies that comprised Turner Broadcasting, one of them was a professional wrestling outfit. You know, again, as, as people who, you know, are familiar with wrestling, have, have supported, you know, the industry, are, fa are fans of the wrestling business, you know, it's sometimes difficult to to appreciate that, but you know, clearly there, there is a certain stigma that existed at that time and, and arguably still does to a lesser degree with respect to pro wrestling and how it's seen, um, you know, by, by people who are not, um, you know, fans of it. Right. Um, especially in that particular world and people at that level. And so <clears throat> that is, that is a long winded way to say that, you know, WCW's existence, you know, was, was always, perilous. If it wasn't for Ted himself at numerous times, uh, WCW would have been sold or would have been shut down, you know, years before the Monday Night Wars and, and when it did become, you know, a, a cultural uh, phenomenon. So, you know, as, as long as WCW could, you know, maintain that, that same sort of success that it saw in 97 and 98, um, you know, it was always buying itself a little bit more time. But, but clearly, for a number of reasons that the book, you know, elucidates, and I, I don't want to give away too much, you know, that that wasn't possible. And once the company's fortune started to turn and, you know, creatively and otherwise things started to decline, you know, there was really no one within that, that company on a corporate level that was going to take a stand and say, no, you know, WCW, you may not like it, but this company has, has done well in recent years. It's made a lot of money. Uh, you know, it, it may be a case of we're going to have a, a few bad years here, but we're going to commit to this company. We're going to stick with it. That wasn't the case at all. You know, as soon as things started to, to slide in a, in a negative direction, uh, again, without giving away too much, you can read about it in the book, but the wheels were, was, were put in motion to sort of, um, you know, get rid of the company from that, from that corporate structure. So, you know, again, I think two things can be true at the same time. Obviously, creatively, you know, WCW experienced a serious decline. You can look at the, the television ratings, the live attendance numbers, the pay-per-view buy rates, which I think is one of the more underreported aspects of the WCW story. The fact that, you know, although there was still a pretty, you know, sizable television audience for WCW at the end, there were relatively few people who were willing to actually pay to see the product versus you know, where it had been in, in those good years. Um, so all of that is true. All of that happened. But but ultimately, that really had nothing to do with why there's no WCW today. Um, and so, you know, people will need to really read the book to, to find out um, why that's the case. Yeah, it's crazy to think, like, you know, they're getting 700,000 buys in, for Starcade in 1997. And then you go, you know, towards the end, and it's like 50,000, 60,000, 80,000. I mean, it's pretty low considering where they were at just a few years earlier. 
Yeah, and I, and I think you know one of the things that I didn't appreciate or understand prior to the book coming out as well. And there's a there's a particular chapter. Um, I think it's it, it's chapter nine in the book, which really goes into the very complex um, accounting system that they had at Turner, um, and and its effect on WCW. And you know, there's there's a number of ways I think it it, it really hindered um, the company. But one that that comes to mind based on what you were saying was the the practice that. If WCW, for example, you know, registered, let's just pick a number out of thin air, 500,000 buys for a particular pay-per-view in a particular year, um, the books were then set up in such a way where there was an anticipation that if 500,000 was the baseline number for this particular pay-per-view, let, let's just say Bash at the Beach, right? If 500,000 was our number in 1997, then we can reasonably you know, predict or forecast uh, more accurately that that number is going to be, you know, 550,000 or 525,000, let's say, the following year. And so let's allocate a, uh, a commensurate amount of expenses in line with that forecast, right? So 500,000 was a number. We think that they'll probably do that or a little bit better next year. So let's actually allocate um, uh, you know, uh, a, a number of uh, a number of dollars in terms of the expenses that the company is going to spend to promote this event, to uh, you know, pay uh, maybe celebrities for guest appearances, uh, to market the event. Um, which, if you think about it, is a complete misunderstanding of the wrestling business, right? Because again, we're, we're delving into the territory of cliches here. But you know, how many times have you heard from? an old school wrestler or promoter or someone involved in it, that there's a, a cyclical aspect to wrestling. And whether or not you agree with that completely, common sense would dictate that just because you had a, a massive buy rate for a particular show one year doesn't mean that you're going to replicate that the following year. WrestleMania and events like that being the exception, right? That's where you can reasonably anticipate probably what the, the buy rate or what the interest is going to be. Um, but as you know, as someone who, who knows as much about wrestling as you do, there are times where companies will just catch fire for whatever reason with a particular storyline or a particular character uh, for, 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 for no apparent reason. You know, something that may not be necessarily planned or, or booked or thought out will um, resonate with the audience. And that may result in a huge TV rating or a huge buy rate. And that doesn't mean that it's going to be replicated every year going forward. So you can just imagine, you know, what the reaction was from some of the Turner financial people when they were seeing those pay-per-view buy rates go from, you know, five, six, seven hundred thousand, whatever they were, and the, and the book chronicles all of that, to you know, fifty, sixty thousand the following year. Uh, you know, obviously, it would be very difficult for anyone to try to excuse that and and say that that's not important because clearly it was. Um, but there was just no understanding that. Uh, you know, well, that may be where we are now, but possibly if if the company is given time to rebuild and focus on on new stars, that maybe three to five years from now they can possibly approach the heights that they did in the past. It was, um, you know, pre pretty catastrophic from a financial point of view once that started happening, and that's probably the reason why you hear figures such as sixty million or sixty-two million or even eighty million being reported as, you know, WCW's uh, losses in the year 2000 were because of accounting practices like the, the ones that I just described. Yeah, I was always kind of fascinated by that because, you know, you hear from other people and like, oh, they lost so much money and, and oh, man, they did this, they did that. And it's like, is that really possible? So it's so fascinating that the Nitro book kind of explains it and the accounting practices of Turner and, you know, the, the North Tower, if you will, of how they kind of operated and what they did. I mean, it made WCW look a lot worse than it really was. Exactly. And I, I think, you know, if we're talking about an, an independent wrestling organization, if you think about something on that level in isolation, then, you know, yes, it, it does make sense to, um, to judge the performance of a company purely by its reported financial performance. In other words, if you and I put on a show and we paid out all of our expenses and we sold whatever amount of tickets that we did. And at the end of 
that process, we sat down and said, okay, we just lost $10,000 on that show. You know, that, that would be a pretty good indication that, well, this, this, this was a failure because this is something that was self-contained. Um, you know, all of our expenses, you know, went towards this one particular show. Uh, we generated revenue for this one particular show. But of course, that's not how, you know, things operate when you're talking about a national or an international um, wrestling organization or, or an organization of any kind at that level, um, especially one that was um, part of the, the the Turner corporate structure at the time. Because again, as the book talks about, there was so many um, instances of what they called intercompany allocations, where there would be revenue that WCW would generate that would be recorded in other divisions of the company. Um, and similarly, there would be expenses that would somehow uh, that would sometimes be generated by a division that may may have had an indirect relationship to WCW that were that were recorded on WCW's books. And so there were a lot of decisions that were made um, not not with the idea that we're going to present a true accounting of how successful this company actually is, um, but we're actually generated from a place more so um, of you know political maneuvering and trying to make one division look better than another. And I think you know even sometimes some of the people involved on the WCW side didn't fully appreciate just just you know how much they were getting shafted when it comes to some of those things. And you know if people are interested in in specific examples, again they can go back. I think it's, it's chapter nine in the book, which we spent about four or five thousand words, you know, talking just about that. Really, really good in-depth stuff. And if you really want to learn about that, definitely get the, the Nitro book. No doubt about that. I just feel like it's so ironic that it's so great to have Turner, have the North Tower, to be able to compete with them. I've had Ted Turner say, I want to go on Monday nights. And you, know, and you have the resources and you have their TV trucks and you have their TV production and you have their equipment. And then on the other hand, they kind of kill you because, hey, well, Time Warner is a, is a mess. You know, certain guys don't want wrestling anymore. Then they can kind of do these faulty uh, accounting practices that wouldn't happen if it was a, a quote unquote smaller company or or like a WBF homegrown company run by you know one family, so to speak. So very very ironic to me that that that's like kind of like it helps and then it absolutely kills them. Yeah, and I, I'm glad that you mentioned that as well because again, I, I think that in order to present the relationship between Turner and WCW fairly, you do have to acknowledge that there were some advantages clearly that, that, that came with being associated with Turner Broadcasting at that time, right? Just even even things that you know, Vince McMahon famously complained about back in the day, that the Nitro could go on the air a little bit earlier than Raw could. It could stay, stay on and for an overrun a little bit later. The fact that you had theoretically a lot of cross-promotional opportunities with um, with other elements of the the TBS empire although I think if you speak to people on the WCW side they would argue you know that that didn't happen anywhere near to the degree that they would have hoped for um, you know when Time Warner uh, and and Turner merged in in 1996 again you know you think about Time Warner and and everything that was under its umbrella you know again theoretically that that would be something that could have been a positive for WCW, although ultimately it wasn't. Um, but, but just the, the sheer amount of financial resources that went into attracting some of that top talent and, and promoting you know, the Nitro show and making a commitment to wrestling um, you know, when it was successful. Again, you know, there were some advantages that came with being not just on the Turner networks, um, you know, as we see today with AEW, although the Turner networks today are really Turner networks in name only. Um, but actually being owned by by Turner Broadcasting, um, you know, there, there were some good things that came with that as well. So um, I don't think anyone should be un under any illusions. You know, if you read the book, um, you know, certainly it, we, we sort of, I think, present this relationship as being something that was um, ultimately dysfunctional. Um, but at times, especially in the early Nitro years, was was also at times beneficial for WCW as well. So when you look at WCW and the downfall and everybody kind of saying what they did, when you like were looking at it originally, were you, you think yourself, there's no way like they lost that much money. There's no way that this happened. Like when you like initially looked at it, were you kind of looking at it like negatively or are you just looking at it just, oh, let's see what happened? 
Yeah, I really just came at it more from the standpoint of wanting to get answers um, for questions that hadn't been addressed. You know, I think for such a long time, those of us who followed wrestling, you know, closely back then, we had heard about these sort of shadowy figures, whether they be, you know, Jamie Kellner, who's quoted in the book, by the way, um, or Harvey Schiller, who's also in the on the record in the book. Um, you know, people who we had heard from Eric Bischoff and others, you know, were somehow instrumental in um, in the downfall of the company. But it was curious to me that, you know, you seldom or, or, or actually never heard from some of these principal characters. You know, I think Jamie Kellner is, is the only time he's ever commented publicly on this is in the Nitro book, um, just to give one example. So I, I would like to think that I was coming from it just purely from the standpoint of trying to figure things out. I, I, you know, obviously we all know that the shows got canceled. Well, how did that, how did that decision-making, you know, process take place? What were the steps that led up to that? What were the conversations? Who was in the room? Um, you know, how, how long had that been, you know, you know, a notion within the company that that could happen? You know, all of these are interesting questions that, you know, if you spend time talking to people, um, you know, not not and, and and not always the the people that would immediately come to mind. But if you cast a wide enough net and you try to speak to as many people as you could that were involved in in the situation, you know, eventually you will start to generate some answers. And you know, I was I was pretty blown away with how open and how um, honest most, if not all, of the people that I spoke to were. Um, and in doing so, I was able to to find these answers to these questions that had kind of bugged me for a while. And, and that to me equated to a successful project, you know, regardless of how many people the book ultimately reached the fact that, um, you know, the, the book was able to present, I would like to think as close to a complete story as one ever could. Um, because even if you worked for the company, obviously, you know, you're seeing things from your particular point of view, you're seeing things from your perspective, you're not able necessarily to take in the entire picture. Um, but I think this this book hopefully does, you know, as good a job as, as an outsider could do in, in putting it all together, answering some of those questions. And I think if you read the book, you know, you'll be you'll be under no doubt as to exactly what happened and why WCW is no longer here. Man, Jamie Kellner, too. He's public enemy number one to a lot of the guys still. Exactly. They're still mad at him. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, you know, again, if you speak to, and I'm sure... You know, I've heard your your interviews, and you know, I'm I'm sure uh, if people go back and and listen to a lot of the interviews on on your podcast or other podcasts, when you speak to some of the the top wrestlers or even just the, the wrestlers in general who were associated with WCW at the time, you know, Jamie Kellner is obviously a name that comes out of a lot of people's mouths, and you know, uh, he's he's obviously been blamed for. Um, ultimately pulling the trigger on that decision to, to cancel WCW from the Turner Networks. And prior to writing the book, you know, I, I had always read that supposedly he possessed a hatred for wrestling and was just not a fan of the genre whatsoever, you know, could not be talked out of that, was not interested in, in considering anything other than, you know, I'm running the show now at, at Turner Broadcasting and this has to go off the air, end of story. And I kind of thought, well, you know what, this is probably more complex than that, because if you're axing a show, you know, that has been a staple of your networks for over 25 years in some form or fashion, um, I, I doubt that, you know, it was necessarily solely because of someone's supposed personal hatred of the genre. Um, and people can make up their own minds as to whether or not what I just said is true. I mean, if you read his quotes in the book, he kind of gives his perspective on the the, the menu of options that he was presented with at the time and gives his rationale for why they did what they did. Uh, and I, I know that I've heard from some people who've written to me and, and said, you know, actually that's kind of changed my perspective on him. And um, I can sort of understand his perspective a little bit and why what happened actually happened. Um, and, you know, I'm sure there are other people that maybe take a different stance. Again, you know, in the book, I really tried to stray away from, um, you know, leading people in one direction or another. I'd rather present all of the sides and let you decide. So people can just hear it straight from the horse's mouth and then make up their own minds 
as to um, you know the the veracity of, of his statements and how important he was in in that ultimate decision. Man, uh, just funny to think that you know he, he can't be blamed entirely, but he by in a lot of the wrestlers' minds that were at mm-hmm. every time he gets like the total blame it's like oh he's mm-hmm. the worst businessman of all time you know he turned like a you know something he could have got 60 million for he only sold it for four million you know stuff like that you hear that constantly from from the boys yeah and, and again it's 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 tough to uh add much more to this without giving away i think a really right yeah um, i got you you know yeah key key part of the the final you know couple of chapters of the book but what i will say um is you know, there was a, if, if people remember at that time, you know, there was the anticipation that uh, this this company that, you know, Eric Bischoff was involved in, Fusion Media Ventures had apparently purchased WCW. And, you know, if you think back, back to those early months in 2001, you know, really from around the start of the year up until sort of mid-March or so, um, you know, the, the sort of general feeling was that, this sale was being finalized. They were, you know, crossing the T's and dotting the I's, and it was just a matter of time before, um, you know, that that transaction was complete. And Eric Bischoff was going to be back in in the saddle, running the company, uh, and you know, we would be off to the races with, you know, WCW's future looking a lot brighter. And obviously, in the last couple of weeks of March of two thousand and one, everything changed. Um, but but what I'm getting at is. You know, there there was a a key provision or a key element of that deal that Jamie Kellner and others were forced to to consider in terms of whether or not WCW was going to continue to exist on the Turner Airwaves, and that was something that prior to this book coming out, um, you know, had not really been again to my knowledge, you know, and I was pretty exhaustive in in the the search that I did, you know, had not that that detail had not been disseminated. That was not widely known. That was not really part of the discussion as to why WCW was canceled. So I think if, if you read the book and then you, you read what that particular detail was and you try to look at it from his perspective, you know, again, some people have walked away saying, you know what, I, I kind of get it because he was kind of presented with, you know, a pretty tough pill for, uh, for him in that, in that position, being the new person running the Turner networks, um, you know, a pretty tough pill for him to swallow. But again, that's just one interpretation. And, you know, once again, I really encourage people to consider all of it and then make up their own mind. It's funny too, because there's the Brad Siegel, Stu Snyder controversy too. You know, mm-hmm. they're, they're roommates and Stu only worked for WBF for that time period. And he's making backroom deals with Brad Siegel. And obviously Brad, won't speak on the record and you've talked to him i've talked to him he won't talk on the record about anything mm-hmm. but uh mm-hmm. i mean that's that's out there too floating as a conspiracy i don't know if eric believes it or not but that that's out there you know it's interesting you say that um you know again Stu snyder is another person i i guess has sort of become a you know a, a a folk legend right just someone that we've we've heard the name we've heard that somehow there was an association with him and brad siegel and there were sort of shady you know, business practices, um, you know, with him being hired at the WWF in 2000, having that prior relationship with Siegel, being involved in the sale, and then fairly soon afterwards, you know, exiting his his role as the, the president of the WWF. Um, and again, you know, in doing the book, it was really important to me to try to speak to the people involved. So as you mentioned, I did have you know, a couple of conversations with with Brad Siegel, unfortunately, none of which made their way into the book. Um, but I, I was able to get Stu Snyder, you know, on the record, and, and I directly posed all of these, um, you know, questions to him and, you know, made sure he was under no illusion as to what the perception was. And then again, you know, he responded directly to that perception. So um, it's, again, you know, it's really up to people to consider that and, make up your own mind as to uh, whether or not he's being truthful there. Um, certainly on the surface, you know, there's there's a lot of things um, when it comes to how that deal was made, how quickly it was made. Um, obviously, there's often been a focus on the, the ultimate price tag of the sale. There's a lot of things on the surface. Certainly, I can understand why people would say this doesn't fully add up. 
um, again, just just listen to or read what the people involved have to say and then make up your own mind. Uh, and I'm not sure necessarily what, what Eric, you know, thinks about that. Maybe that would be something that, that you can ask him in a, in a future episode. Yes, definitely. Definitely want to bring that up to him. I think it would pique his interest for sure. But as we hit mm-hmm. the wind down, we head towards the finish here. Again, what will Grateful kind of be about? Where does it start? Where does it end? Are, I mean, are you starting where controversy creates cash ends and going forward, or we're going to have a little bit of mix of everything? Yeah. So, you know, basically, you know, we're picking up the, the story as it relates to Eric's career and Eric's life where controversy creates cash ended. Uh, the, you know, that first book came out in 2006. So we're covering a little bit over 15 years of, of, uh, of ground, you know, and, you know, the book mostly follow, follows a, a chronological order, although we, we do at times kind of jump around a little bit um, for the purpose of telling the story. But I think people are going to really be surprised with this book. I think, you know, if, if you think about before the Nitro book came out, I think there was this widely held perception that everything that possibly could have been uncovered about WCW, the Monday Night Wars, you know, Monday Nitro, all of that programming that happened, everything that possibly could have been uncovered has been uncovered. There's no new ground here. You know, why is there another book coming out? Um, and that was certainly a motivating factor as to why I did the book in the first place. I thought that was an interesting challenge. And equally, you know, I held the same perspective in putting together this book with Eric as well, because again, on the surface, you look at it and you say, he has a weekly podcast. He's someone who's very av- available for interviews. Um, you know, he's addressed certain subjects ad nauseum in the past. Um, and everyone knows his, you know, his opinions on, on those subjects. Um, but also I think there's a, there's a certain, you know, depth to his, his character that I've grown to appreciate in doing this, this book with him. And I think there's a lot of, you know, introspection on his part and, and self-reflection. I think he has got to a place in his life where, um, I think he really has grown to be appreciative of the entire journey of his wrestling career. And I think he's in a place where he feels that he has a lot to offer in terms of, you know, giving back and, and letting people know, you know, here's some of the, yes, successes that I had, but here are some of the pitfalls that I faced and here are some of the challenges that I had. And, and maybe, you know, I can offer some, some, some words and some guidance and, and share my experiences that may help you. And, you know, he has been through a lot and he has, uh, been in a position several times over these past 15 years where, you know, he did think that the wrestling business was in his rearview mirror, mirror, and he was sort of, you know, signing off into the into the sunset only to get back involved in it again. And you know, he's he's had a lot that that's happened in these last 15 years, um, and I think people are going to, you know, learn about some some aspects of his character and personality they've never heard of heard heard about before. I think people are going to hear a lot of stories they've never heard before. Um, and I think, you know, hopefully we are putting it in a, in a format, in a package that is going to be really compelling for people. And, and my goal really with this book, as with any book, is to produce something that people feel like they can go back and read multiple times in the future. You know, uh, you know I think, you know, the story itself is, is going to be pretty compelling for people, I would like to think. Um, where maybe six months or a year later they they want to go back and and revisit the whole thing. So um, you know he really doesn't pull any punches in the book. It's it's certainly not a you know a puff piece, right? It's not 400 pages of why you know Eric Bischoff has had nothing but unparalleled success and he's the greatest guy in the world. You know, thankfully he's someone who's very honest about um, what he perceives to be his flaws and his weaknesses and mistakes that he's made and financial difficulties and, and stresses and all of these things. And I think it, it really adds up to what's going to be a, a pretty unique wrestling autobiography because for the wrestling fans, we're covering all the important beats. We're covering his time in TNA. We're covering when he went back to the WWE as an executive, you know, for those four months, we're covering his, his involvement in AEW. We're covering his relationship with Hulk Hogan and, and all of those important things are there. But I think there's going to be some broader lessons um, that hopefully people can take away from the book as well. So, um, again, it's, it's bischoffbook.com. 
And if you pre-order, you know, both Eric and I will sign the book for you. And as I mentioned, there's some bonus content that will come along for the people who pre-order it. Um, and if you're interested in the Nitro book that we talked a lot about um, and this new book, Grateful, you can just go to guyevansbooks.com, which is a new website uh, we just launched last week. And you can find links to to buy all of that stuff there. Awesome stuff, as always. Guy, great stuff. I mean, I feel like I could talk to you about WCW forever. I mean, I got so much <laughs> uh, on my mind with WCW. I don't want to go too crazy uh, for you tonight. But, yeah, thank you so much uh, for all the time. I appreciate it. Well, John, it's, it's always a pleasure talking to you. And, you know, anytime you want to have me on to talk about the old days or wrestling today or any subject you want, just let me know. And I, I also want to say, uh, you know, to you personally, thank you for all of your support in, in helping get the word out about the Nitro book. I know that when we did the first interview, that reached a lot of people as well. Um, and so I really appreciate that. And, and also everything you do being a, a, a true wrestling historian and, and the way that you've conducted all of these interviews you've left a pretty amazing archive for people to to go back and listen to so thank you thank you guy really appreciate the kind words thank you very much you're welcome this has been a john pause power trip production in conjunction with the two-man power trip of wrestling you could follow us on instagram and twitter at two-man power trip you could check us out on facebook you could subscribe on youtube you can go to patreon.com slash tmptempire to become a patron and also check out the website tmptempire.com and buy a shirt at prowrestlingtees.com. Two-man power trip where the power lies, brother.